Uh, well, great. Uh, certainly uh, good to be here. Um, this is a uh, long time coming. I, the first couple of years when we would get together after Andrew had uh, started this church plant, you guys all remember we would, every once in a while, we'd get together both churches. First couple of years we did that and then we kind of tailored it off. And then Andrew and I were thinking together, well, maybe we should, uh, maybe we should swap churches uh, for a Sunday and see how uh, that would go in terms of us um, meeting the churches that don't know us. And uh, although I know everybody here uh, online, I don't know some of you. Hello, some of you, I don't know who you are, but I'm Dan. Nice to meet you. Thanks for the wave. I appreciate that. Um, but uh, yeah, we... Uh, if we don't have much time this morning, I think, why don't we just dive right in? So if you've got your Bibles with you, turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Uh, Galatians chapter 5. And we'll read together verses 16 right through to 25. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through to 25. If uh, I don't know if you're in the habit of doing this, but if you would stand with me as we read together, I'd appreciate that. Galatians chapter 5, beginning to read in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desires against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envyings, drunkenness, carousings, and things like these which I forewarn you just as I forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for your word. And it's your word that transforms the way that we think. It transforms the way that we live in this world. And it transforms us, Lord, because we understand your word wasn't spoken to us that we would uh, change in our thinking, but that we would change in our very lives. And so we ask this morning, Lord, that you would do your work in our lives as we submit to your word. And I pray, Lord, you'd help me to get out of the way and you'd come to the forefront. And uh, we're grateful that your spirit has a way of speaking right through to the depth of who we are. And uh, you have a way of doing this personally. And so we ask that you would do that this morning. The things that we need to learn, Lord, we're ready to learn them. The things that we need to apply, we're ready to apply them now. And we understand that you're speaking to us, the God of the universe, you speak to us through your word. And so this is not some kind of an exercise in, uh, in new understanding or a great book. This is you speaking to us. And so let us consider it that way. So we submit to your word now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Again, it's uh, it's great to be here. Um, Andrew, of course, he's up at Pine Ridge. They they started at nine o'clock. It was kind of interesting this morning. I uh, I got an extra 
bought an extra half an hour or 45 minutes to sleep in. It was kind of nice, so I appreciate, maybe we'll have to do this more often, the switching thing. Uh, I actually got a text right when I woke up, like, I woke up and I got a text and they were already at the church, so, um, but I trust that Andrew is, is having a, a great time there. Of course, he knows some of the people there, and uh, uh, again, I know all the people here, and, and I look forward to meeting uh, the rest of the people I've not seen yet, maybe in the next service. Uh, but uh, I, I, I just got to say just a few words about Andrew before I start in here. Uh, Andrew is a fantastic pastor. I know that um, you all don't need me to say that, but um, he's not only a great pastor, he's probably one of the greatest disciplers I know. He's very good at meeting with people and helping people and walk through the Word of God. And, and I'm privileged to meet with Andrew every week. We meet on Wednesday afternoons for sometimes up to three hours as he... Myself and Bryce, who's now going to be our next church plant in uh, next January, a year from now, he's going to be starting a church. So he's now joined us. And, uh, but it's a privilege to meet with him every week as we walk through and talk through the Word of God and, and how, do we, uh, how are we working through uh, things in our church. So for those of you that I've not met, uh, maybe I've heard your name. Don't worry, it's all in good. And, uh, but uh, yeah, quite a privilege that you have Andrew as your pastor. Alright, so uh, this morning we want to look at Galatians 5 and we're going to be diving into this notion of how the God of the universe, how does he lead and direct his people? How does a God in the, of the universe direct uh, Christians? Um, does he lead people? Well, yeah, of course he does. Of course God's lead, God leads people. But the question is, how does he do this? If God is going to communicate to us and if he's going to direct us, how is he going to do this? Now, from my own personal experience, uh, the most common way that God uh, leads people is uh, ways that have no moral implications. Now, this is what, from my experience, what I've heard. I'm not talking the Bible now, for, but from my own experience, when people talk about God leading them, they talk about God leading them in ways that have no moral implications. Uh, this kind of leading is, most, is the most common I've encountered in my life. And if you were to hear a fellow Christian, at least in my experience, tell you that God is leading them, they most commonly talk about a God telling them to move to a particular place. Uh, maybe telling them to take this job. Maybe telling them to go speak to somebody. Maybe God's telling them to go to Bible college or to marry this person or to break up with that person if they're dating. These are the most common ways that I've experienced in my life. How are they led uh, in this way from their own thoughts? They, they tell me that they have an impression. God is impressed upon their lives, so some kind of thought comes to their head in this regard, and this is how God is leading them. And if it's not that, then it's a series of positive uh, circumstances that seem to all line up together. So this one, and then this one, and this one, and because there's two or three or four or five, we can, we can stack them all together, and that must mean clearly God is leading me or directing me in one specific way. Now I'm curious uh, with all of you here, I'm curious as to how many of you have experienced somebody uh, tell you that God has directed them or led them in a certain way, maybe to go to a certain place or to meet somebody or something like this, but then uh, later on you find out that it got changed or reversed. Has anybody ever experienced that? So that's everybody here. That's all your hands. Um, this is obviously a common thing that has happened to me. I've been a pastor now for almost 25 years. can't believe I just said that, but yeah, almost 25 years. And that's why the hair is falling out, because that's what happens when you're a pastor for this long. Uh, but um, for years, when, when, especially early on as a pastor, 
I would simply put up with Christians who would say this kind of thing. You all have experienced this too, where people uh, have said this and then they've, then they've changed their mind or reversed things or whatever. And it's, they've said God was leading them, but now somehow it's changed. And for years I kind of, I put up with it, especially early on in ministry. And then there was two that happened that kind of changed me. Uh, one was a guy who told me that, I was in Kentucky at that time, and he told me that God was leading him off to Texas. And so uh, his name was Tim, and uh, he sat in my office, and I said, you know, sounds great. And so he went off to Texas. And then a year later, he came back. And I said, oh, you know what happened? Because when he was first telling me about God leading him to Texas, it was like a permanent type thing, but now he's back in Kentucky. I said, so how, how did it, how'd that all work? He said, well, you know, God then told me, he kind of changed things and, and told me that now I'm supposed to be back in Kentucky. And I didn't like this because I felt that he had kind of reversed it and he was kind of dragging God's name through the mud. So I didn't like that at all. And then another guy said that uh, uh, he was at seminary, not all the way through seminary. And he said that God was calling him to go to Africa. And uh, he and his wife, was, they were called to go to Africa, God told him. And then uh, he uh, was talking to another two couples, and he talked to them as well, and he was, was suggesting that maybe we go as a team. And so these other two couples said, yeah, we'll go. So these six people, three couples, were all going to go off to Africa based on the leading of God to this one man. And, uh, and then partway through, before he actually got to Africa, God changed his mind and told him that now he's supposed to stay uh, in, in Kentucky. Well, the two other couples were already, had already sold their things and were already going to go to Africa. And so how does this work now that God's kind of changed his mind or changed things here? And he said, well, maybe, maybe God told me to go to Africa in order to get these two couples to go. So he told me to go to Africa so I could get these two couples to go. And then once these two couples had signed on, then God reversed and changed and, and come back. And I, you know, I just, I just kind of got tired of people dragging God's name through the mud. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to go study this for myself, which I did. And I studied through the book of Matthew and the book of Acts in particular. And I'll tell you some of my conclusions here in a few minutes. But again, in my own experience, um, the most common ways that people say that God is leading them is either through a series of events. Maybe they've been praying about something and then a, a series of events seems to line up and they'd say, well, therefore God's leading me. Or they get an impression uh, in their mind that God is telling them to do something or to go somewhere. Now, from my perspective, I don't believe that God uh, directs people that way. I don't believe he does. Now, some people immediately come to the conclusion, well, uh, Dan, you think that God must be at the end of the universe then, right? So we become Christians, and then God kind of stays off at the end of the universe, and he never talks to us. Nothing could be further from the truth in terms of what I believe. Does God lead people to geographical locations? Yeah, yeah, he does do that. And he has done that in the Bible. And if you want to look, I think I did a sermon on this uh, about one and a half, two years ago. But let me tell you how God has led people to geographical locations in the Bible. When God wants to move somebody to get to a specific location, he does this through supernatural means. Overwhelming supernatural means like a vision or a dream, a prophetic word, an angelic visit, or the audible voice of God. You can check it out. Go through the book of Matthew. Go through the book of Acts. If God wants somebody to go to a specific geographical location, this is the way he's going to do it. You take Joseph, for example, in the early chapters of Matthew. Now, Joseph wouldn't have known this, but God knew that Herod wanted to kill all these newborn babies to try to get after the Messiah at that point, Jesus, who's been born. So he tells him in a dream, I want you to move and go to Egypt. 
Again, it was through a dream. Then, of course, you go through the rest of the book of Acts and see prophetic words, angelic visits, etc., etc. When God leads in this way, it's, it's when people wouldn't have never have thought to go to this place. There's no reason why they would ever go to a place like this. And it's not just geographical. Sometimes God tells people to go meet somebody or go to talk to somebody. Again, when God has to do this, because within their minds, they would never come up with this kind of conclusion. And so if you're walking through the book of Acts and you're looking for stories that would confirm this, you go to Philip. Philip's in Samaria. There's a massive revival going on. And God needs to move him to go talk to the Ethiopian eunuch. How does he move him? He comes through an angelic visit. He says, I want you to go. And so he goes to this desert road. He would have never have thought of going there. But God, therefore, has to tell him in some kind of extra supernatural means, I need you to get to that road. Or take Ananias. You remember when Saul had just become a Christian. He had been, he'd already been blinded. And now he's... Um, in mourning, as he's considering his whole life that had been, uh, now at that point, had been persecuting the Christian church, and he's in mourning, he's blinded. This is in Acts chapter 9. And God now needs somebody to go speak to Saul, to actually to, to tell him about the message of Jesus. So he chooses Ananias. Ananias, would he ever think to go and speak to that guy? who at his hands had killed Stephen, and at his hands had, had brought uh, countless people into prison? Would Ananias have ever thought that? No. So God had to go visit him in a supernatural way. Again, in a vision to Ananias. Or take Peter. Peter had said, it's not right for me to go to a Gentile home. Not even on his radar. And God tells Peter through a vision, he says, I need you to go down with the people who are, who are going to meet you at the door. I need you to go to this particular home. It's a Gentile home. Peter, it's not even on his radar. In fact, when Peter gets to this guy's house to Cornelius' house, he starts out by saying, it's not really lawful for me to be here, which is not the most best way, I guess, to tell the company who asked you to come into their house. Now you're in their living room, and you say, by the way, it's not right for me to be with you here, Gentiles. That comes out of his mouth right off the bat. No way would have thought that. So God needed some kind of extra supernatural way to get him there. Or again, you take Joseph to go to move to Egypt. That's not his hometown. That's not where he wants to move. That's not where he would like to go. But God has to move him there to protect the Messiah, Jesus, who was born at that time. In all of these cases, God had to lead these people in some kind of extra, obvious, supernatural way because they would have never thought to go to these places. Does God need to lead to a location as a precursor to effective ministry? No, he doesn't need to do that either. We just spoke about Philip in Acts chapter 8 in Samaria. Massive revival in that city. Did God tell him supernaturally to get there? No. So effective ministry is not a precursor that God has to supernaturally tell you to go there. So how does God lead if he's going to lead and tell people to tell us to go to geographical locations? He's going to do it through a very obvious means. Through a vision, an angelic visit, etc., etc. Prophetic word, these kinds of things. Not through inner impressions or through a series of stacked up events that are all lined up together and say, therefore, it must be God. Now, again, this does not mean that God doesn't lead people, but we're talking about God leading people right now in non-moral type ways. So how does God lead us as Christians?
I have yet to see a clear biblical passage where the inner leading of the Spirit is involved in anything other than character development. I've yet to see in all of Scripture where there's some kind of passage that talks about the inner leading of the Spirit involved in anything other than character development. Because that's the way that God will lead us into character. There are no passages indicating an inner leading or impressions of God's Spirit whereby we're supposed to grab this certain job or to marry this certain person or to move to this location or to sell your home or to invest in something or to even go and talk to somebody. There's nothing like this in the Bible. I'm not saying that God can lead this way. He clearly has done this through the Bible. I'm saying that there are no biblical uh, passages that show that God leads His people in these ways through some kind of an inner impression. I want to read to you a a section from um, Thomas Oden. It's uh, called Life in the Spirit. He's a scholar. He's he's passed away now. I actually got to meet him when he came to Asbury Seminary. But I want to read to you uh, a section from his book, He's talking about the kind of people who are suggesting that God tells him to go here through inner impressions and stuff like this to locations or to speak to a person, sell a home, this kind of thing. He says this. Any suggestion that it might be in any way colored by their own projections is taken as opposed to faith itself. So if you're talking to a person about this and you give any suggestion that it may in any way be colored by their own projections is to be taken as opposed to faith itself. The remedy for privatistic excess lies in listening for the address of the Spirit inwardly in a way that corresponds with the written word received and celebrated in the historic Christian community. It's in the written word. This is where we get our cues from as to how God leads people. So, how will God lead His people through His inner Spirit? How will He do this? How can I tell if God is actually leading somebody? Not by them telling you that God impressed them to do this or that non-moral action. You can tell if God is leading somebody by how they conduct their lives. You want to know if the Spirit of God is leading somebody? All you have to do is look at their lives. Look with me again at Galatians 5, 17 and 18. Actually, we'll start in 16. I say, walk by the Spirit. This is a walk. Walk by the Spirit and you won't carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit sets its desire against the flesh. These are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. He's talking about an inner battle that's going on inside of us. There's a flesh that's telling us to go one direction, and the spirit that's telling us to go another. Now the question then is, okay, well if the flesh is leading us, what will it look like? Or if the spirit's leading us, what will that look like? Paul says, let me explain it to you. I'll tell you what it looks like. Verse 19, the deeds of the flesh are evident, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envyings, drunkenness, carousings, and things like these. If you want to know if the flesh is leading somebody, you look at their life. You look at their life and it looks like these things. If you want to know whether or not the Spirit of God is leading you, if somebody is actually walking by the Spirit, or if they're living by the Spirit, he tells us what that will look like. Verse 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, 
gentle is self-control against such things there is no law. If we live by the Spirit, let us therefore walk by the Spirit. The way that we walk, we are to walk in our lives in according to the direction of the Spirit. How is the Spirit going to lead us? Into love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. <clears throat> now I've had people say to me before, in fact in a sermon a few years back, Somebody said to me, well, Dan, I know Christian, I know non-Christians or secular people who look more like Christians than the Christians I know. I know secular people out there who look more like Christians and secular than, than Christians do. And to that I say it's absolute garbage. Now, when I first heard that, I thought, okay, I'm going to write a sermon series. And I did on, on 10 commands of Jesus that secular people reject. I can guarantee there are at least 10, and I came up with 10 just because 10 sounded good because of the Ten Commandments. But 10 commands of Jesus that secular people will reject. Let me give you a few of them. Forgiveness without limit. That's Christians. There's no limit to our forgiveness. We forgive and we forgive and we forgive and we forgive. Secular people, uh-uh. We're also told to deny ourselves. And Christians, what we do is we deny ourselves. That's not secular people. We are told to have no sexual activity apart from marriage. That's not secular people. We are told to love our enemies. That's not secular people. We can go through and find out through the scriptures that there are clear indications of what it looks like for us to be followers of Jesus. At the same time, there are also clear indications of people who do not look like they're followers of Jesus. And in here, specifically from Galatians 5, there are clear indications that you can know whether or not somebody is being led by the Spirit. And Galatians talks about this, these two internal direct, directional sources. One is, is, is begging us to go one way, and one is begging us to go another. The flesh is telling us to go one way, which Jesus says you have to deny daily. And then we've got the Spirit telling us to go another way, which we are to embrace. If you take your cues from the flesh, Paul says, here's what it's going to look like. If you take your cues from the Spirit, here's what it's going to look like. So you can know if God is leading somebody if they are evidenting the life of fruit, the fruitful life of, of, what it, of the indications of what it looks like for us to be led by the Spirit, as we have right here. But here we're talking about a character leading. Now if somebody were saying to me, well, Dad, do you think that God leads people, you know, uh, Christians every day? I'd say 100%. I say, is God going to lead you today? Maybe he already has. Is God going to be um, nudging you to go in a certain way, give you an impression to go a certain way? I'm going to say, yeah, he, he will, by his spirit. But it's going to be a character leading. It's a character leading that he does with us every single day. Just like the flesh, like Jesus says, has to be denied every day. So now that we have the spirit, it's to be embraced every day. The hard part, though, is what will that look like? How will that feel? So if God is leading us by His Spirit, what might that look like? So somebody might say, well, it says here, uh, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. So maybe today you step out uh, of the church and you're thinking, wow, I'm trying to figure out how God leads. And you hear this, love, love, inside of your head. Or joy, peace, patience. I, I don't think it's that way. I think there's going to be applications of how we walk in those, in those ways. So let me uh, take a few minutes. I'm going to see if I can expand on some of these characteristics. So what we're talking about here is when, when the Spirit of God is actually leading us. When the Spirit of God is leading us, He's going to lead us into love. So what might that look like? 
If God is impressing upon us to walk in the area of love, what might that look like? Well, love is the ultimate characteristic of a Christian. Uh, Romans chapter 13 and verse 10, if you're taking notes, you can jot that down. Romans chapter 13 and verse 10 says, The whole law can be summed up as loving your neighbors yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, and therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And so what does love actually look like? When the Spirit of God is moving us into love, it's going to be about self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice on the move to somebody else so that they thrive. I'll say that again. Love is self-sacrifice. It's denying what we want. Self-sacrifice, but it's on the move to somebody else so that they can then thrive. This is my limited definition from, from my uh, years of, of studying uh, the Bible. I would, say it's, 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 it, I would say it's accurate according to the scriptures. It's where we're sacrificing something we want, something we desire, something we have, for the purpose of giving to another person. Now, when we love like this, we don't keep a record. Christians don't keep a record of how much we love. Secular people do. Jesus talks about this in Luke chapter 6 and verse 32. It says, secular people, what they do is they love those who love them back. It's a reciprocal thing in Luke chapter 6. Jesus says, look, secular people can do that. And by the way, that love is called agape love. So if you say, well, maybe that's not real love. It's genuine love. And Jesus says, secular people can do this. They can love those who love them back. Jesus says, I'm not asking that. I'm asking you to love those who don't love you back. And in that sense, we don't keep a record of how much love we've given, or how much love we've given, or how much love we've received. There's no such thing as a love bank with Christians. Secular people, of course, again, we're talking about reciprocal love. Christians, that's not the case. We hand out love regardless of how much people have loved us. Now, uh, the people that I'm, the adults that I'm speaking to here, all of them, uh, for the most part, are married. Those who are 18 and older, I think, yes, all of you are married. So this is a, this is a really tough thing in marriage, right? Because in marriage, you, you feel and you have the impression of the Spirit of God telling you to sacrifice something of yourself to give to your wife or to give to your husband. This is very common. But as soon as you start keeping a, a track record of this, as to how much you've given and how much less they have given to you, that's not, that's not the Spirit of God anymore. That's what secular people do. So love is self-sacrifice on the move to another, whether it be a husband or a wife, or to our kids, or to our friends, or to our relatives. We self-sacrifice for their purpose, without any regard for keeping track of how much your love bank is filled up. Say, well, if my love bank gets filled up to here, then I can hand some out. But if it's pretty low and not very many people giving me love, then I'm going to try to find ways to get it, manipulate them or whatever i got to do to get that love. That's not the spirit of God leading. Is it wrong to want love from another person? Of course it's not. I mean, I want love from all you all. I want love from my wife or from my kids. I want love from all my friends. Of course I do. But when you get to a point of expecting that, or that to be now the condition as to whether or not you're going to love somebody else, that's not the leading of the Spirit anymore. 1 John chapter 4 talks about this clear demonstration among believers. You want to know whether or not there's believers? Look and see how they love one another. Again, to desire love is not wrong, but to expect it, there's going to be some kind of demand or some kind of manipulation where you're not getting 
what you want. That's not about love. And of course, 1 Corinthians 13, which is a great passage. Many people say, well, it's not a great marriage passage. Actually, 1 Corinthians 13, when it talks about love, there is actually a rebuke to the Corinthian people. Love is this, love is that, love is not this, and it's not that. And whenever Paul says love is not this and not that, you go back in, in the book of 1 Corinthians and you'll realize that these are the very things that Paul was speaking against. And as the Corinthians were reading what love was, their faces would have been all flushed and embarrassed because he knew that they were speaking as a rebuke. Love is self-sacrifice on the move to another. So if you want to know whether or not this afternoon, whether or not the Spirit of God is leading you, you just have to ask yourself this question. Is it about self-sacrifice? Something that I want right now, but self-sacrifice on the move to somebody else for their benefit. Then you can know the Spirit of God's leading you. What about joy? What does joy look like? When the Spirit of God is leading us into joy, what, what might that look like? Uh, Philippians, if you're taking notes, you can jot it down. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 17 helps us out here. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. Even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering, He's still talking about joy that's going on inside of him. I think a, a really good expression of that for Paul would have been in Acts chapter 16. You remember where he and Silas <clears throat> were thrown into prison completely unjustly. And they were beaten and they're bruised and bleeding. They're in the inner chamber. They had their stalks all, all around them as they're in prison there. And what might you or I be saying at that juncture point? I don't know. But I can tell you what Paul and Silas were doing. They're singing hymns of praise to God. They're praising the Lord. They've got joy. And it says there that the prisoners were listening to them. All the rest and all the other cells were listening to them. And it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense for Paul to respond this way. How can you have any kind of joy when you've been treated unjustly, you've been beat to a pulp, and now you're in prison? How can you possibly have joy? Because joy is an internal type of, of disposition despite your circumstances. Joy is an internal disposition despite your circumstances. That's the Spirit of God leading you. You're in a rough situation right now, tough situation. And if you were to hand that situation to somebody else out there, you'd think, wow, they would be in deep trouble. Not as Christians. We can still have joy despite the circumstances. So if you want to know whether or not the Spirit of God is leading you into the area of joy, this is what you look for. How about peace? Talk about the fruit. one of the fruits of the leading of the Spirit is into peace. This is where your current situation is screaming for you to be anxious. But the reality is you've actually got peace. And the world can't understand this. Nor will they, for this peace is not human. This peace is supernatural. It's from the leading of God. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 4, many of you know this, these verses are very key in this, is that don't be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication. Let your request be known before God, and the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and lives in Christ Jesus. Now, it's not talking about some kind of, if you, if you pray when you're in the midst of anxious, don't worry, there's going to be an injection that's, I, sh I shouldn't do that these days, that's vaccination stuff, right? But there's not kind of an injection of peace that God by His Spirit gives you. The idea is what you're doing is you're handing over your anxiousness, you're handing over your circumstance to God. And by doing that, you say, you can take this. And God says, that's right, I can take this. 
My burden's light. Give it to me. And now, even though your circumstances are screaming for you to be anxious, you've got a peace. That's the leading of God's Spirit. That's how you can know the Spirit of God is leading you. Getting over the anxiety hump is dependent on you taking the lead of the Spirit. And of course, prayer is, is specific here. It's really key. This is not about good self-talk and self-talking your way out of it. Good self-talk is dependent on the flesh. And it may offer you something for the moment, but your peace will fall flat when the flesh gets threatened again. Whereas the peace from God comes from the believed fact that God can and will work all things together for good. Whether it's our understanding of good or not, God, we can know, is going to work our circumstance and our situation out for good, according to His good. If we believe this, we can walk in peace and we can hand it over to Him. That's what it'll look like if God's leading you into peace. How about patience? What might that look like if God, by His Spirit, is leading us into patience? Patience is not easily irritated or frustrated with others. It's not quick-tempered. Again, if you're taking notes, Proverbs 16.32 is helpful here. Patience is when you're not easily irritated, where you're not easily frustrated with others. There's no quick-tempered thing. Impatience is where you are not in control of things, and they don't go your way, and so you get irritated and frustrated with others. What is that a demonstration of? That's a demonstration of you being led by the flesh. When you're, lead, when you're being led into patience, you will have a forgiving spirit. You will be non-retaliatory when other people are inconsiderate of you. That's when impatience comes. When other people are inconsiderate of you, bang, that's where impatience comes. But if you're being led by God's Spirit, it's a forgiving spirit. I'd love to say to you that this fruit can be clearly evidenced when I'm driving my car and somebody cuts me off. I'd love to say that. That's a battle for me. I'll just be straight up. It's a battle for me. And I'm not maybe as obvious as flashing lights, but I at least want to drive close to them and get their attention. Right? I'm impatient. I'm frustrated with you. That's not the leading of God's Spirit. When your wife or your husband says something to you that wasn't all that kind, and he gets frustrated or, and, you, and you say something in the moment, that's impatience. But patience, you're not usually irritated. You're not, you don't get frustrated easily. And you're not quick-tempered. What about kindness? What about when kindness is leading you? I should probably make sure that I'm not I'm going over here. I'm still okay. What does kindness look like? Well, kindness is a generous act toward another. Again, this is, this is part and parcel, a little bit of love, as we talked about earlier. But Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 is helpful here. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as Christ has also forgiven you. This kindness that we hand out to each other, we hand out because of the kindness that God has given to us. It's a generous act toward another person. It's initiated by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God initiates in you, and it's not saying that anybody out there is deserving. It's not. It's, a, it's irrelevant to Christians. When you're being led into kindness, you just do a generous act toward another, regardless of who they are or what they've done. It's irrelevant. What about goodness? Goodness is really doing the right thing. It comes from the Greek word agathusin, agathusona. Don't be impressed because I can't say it either. <laughs> But it comes from the Greek word, and you can all look it up. It's actually quite simple. But in Matthew chapter 1, and verse 19, Joseph does the right thing. He does the good thing. 
And when you're being led by God's Spirit, you know what the right thing is to do because the Spirit's leading you. Now, in, in terms of doing goodness, there may be nobody else around you because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who sees what you do. When the Spirit of God is leading you to go, into goodness, even if you're all alone, you still do the right thing. It's not about what you can get away with, but about the right thing that you're doing. And self-sacrifice is almost always a good check at this point. What about faithfulness? Faithfulness is loyal commitment to another. Hebrews chapter 3, I don't have time to look at it right now, but you can look it up later. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. It talks about the loyalty and the loyal commitment you have to another. It's a kind of relationship that Jonathan had with David. And David with Jonathan, remember they were so close. They each had each other's back. Remember that test was given and David says, I think your dad, I, I think Saul, he wants to kill me. So, he, so Jonathan says, look, I got you here. And so I'll, I'll make sure that this is the case. And they have this indication of shooting an arrow and this kind of thing. Jonathan says, I got your back. You want to know if somebody has, is exhibiting faithfulness? Ask yourself the question, who's got your back? In my church, there's a few men that I can tell you straight up, I know they got my back. And I know the leadership of this church, especially the leadership of this church, and they got your back. But who's got your back in your life? Hopefully, right off the bat, if you're married, you say, my wife or my husband, they for sure got my back. That's what it is to be loyal. You don't abandon. And loyalty, when God's leading us into loyalty, you would not abandon somebody. What about gentleness? What does that look like? When the Spirit of God is leading you into gentleness, that means that you're not harsh. You're not rude. You're not judgmental. You're not condemning. That's, just, that's, that's what it is to be led by God's Spirit. What it's not, to begin with, I think is important. It's not harsh. You're not harsh in your words. You're not rude. You're not judgmental. You're not condemning. But instead, you're meek. You can look this up at 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1. Again, you can look it up later. I'm running out of time here, so I'm just going to maybe just refer to the references as we go along. Gentleness, you're not harsh, you're not rude, you're not condemning, you're not judgmental. And then we get to the big one, self-control. What does self-control look like? It's discipline to control oneself in harnessing one's physical cravings. Now, I want to read to you, even though I said I wasn't going to read anymore, this one's really important. Because the other ones aren't down, right? Some scriptures not down, but these ones are not. I'm not saying that, of course. First, uh, First John chapter 2, verses 15 and 17. Have a listen to this. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, they're not from the Father, but from the world. And here it talks about the lust of the flesh. What's the lust of the flesh? These are cravings that are attached to our flesh. We have flesh, and there are cravings that we have in our flesh, and, this, and, the, and our flesh says, go after them. There's no restraints, you just go after them. So what are we talking about? What kinds of things does our physical body, what do we crave? Well, we crave food. We all crave food. Taste, right? You get taste buds, it's a great gift from God. He could have made us not have taste buds, and we just have to eat food to survive. He says, no, here's a gift for you. I'm gonna give you taste buds, you can enjoy food. Great. The flesh says, eat whatever, as much as you want, without any constraint, and you just go after it. 
And if that's the case, we end up, of course, in, in gluttony. Now, these days, you should not take your cues from what the world is saying about what it is to be a glutton and what it is. Like, there are, I honestly, I feel so, I'm so upset by the messages, especially that women get on every grocery aisle, on every stinking TV commercial that's out there, is about what it is to actually be the right weight. This garbage. Food and taste. Yes, it's given to us by God. But I think the standards that are out there in the world, no, we don't take our cues from them. But there's a sense in which, you know, when, when the, the proverb says that, have you found honey? Don't eat too much lest you vomit it up. So I had too much, I had too much uh, candy over Christmas. I know I had too much candy. Why? Well, because I, I, I feel it. And everybody has their own subjective way of eating too much candy. Did you vomit? That's what proverb says. If you eat too much, you'll vomit it up. Well, that's a pretty good indication. There's some people in here, your indication of too much sugar might be totally different. I will, I will guarantee you that I would, my guess is I beat most of you in the area of sugar. I love sweets. I love them. But there's a sense in which, yes, we enjoy them, but we can't go overboard on them. There's a sense in which we need to harness the, the cravings that we have, eat more, enjoy more, and go after them. Or there's endorphins. That's another thing that our physical uh, flesh, we crave endorphins. We want to feel great. We want to feel great. And I'm not just talking about alcohol here and drugs or psychedelic type drugs. There are many other drugs out there that make people feel feel better that are not talking about psychedelic trips. You know what I'm talking about. But endorphins, it's just like, I don't feel so good and I want to feel better. And so what is out there that I can get to go after so that I feel better? And of course, alcohol and drug abuse, of course, these are the main ones. But there's no restraint. The flesh says there's no restraint. You need to feel better. You don't feel good right now? Feel good and laugh, etc., etc. Sometimes endorphins is in the area of humor that we go after. And sometimes we compromise and we watch things that we shouldn't. And therefore we're laughing at things we shouldn't. But we crave that laughter, even if it's in a compromised way. And so we go after it. Because it's endorphins. We want our flesh wants to feel good. And so we go after them. Self-control says there's a limit there. And then, of course, sexual pleasure. Our physical, our physical flesh, we crave it. We crave it. The flesh doesn't say there's any time you need to stop it. The flesh says you just go right after it. <clears throat> Carte blanche, you go for it. But a fruit of the Spirit is what? Self-control. It's controlling those cravings of the flesh. In these areas, the flesh says you just go after them. The flesh says there is no filter. You need to feel better. You need to taste things. You need to go after sex. These are the kinds of things. Go after without, without restraint. And when that's happening in your life, you're not being led by the Spirit of God. Because the Spirit of God is self-control. Now here's the point. None of these cravings are bad in and of themselves. Feeling good, endorphins, sexual pleasure, that's not bad. Actually, sexual pleasure is actually really good. Taste, that's good. But self-control, the leading of the Spirit says, that's not the end. Those things are not the end. And so there needs to be self-control. And the Spirit will lead you, therefore, to control those appetites of the flesh. The leading of the flesh is go after without constraint. Leading of the Spirit, the cravings of the flesh need to be controlled and managed in a godly way.
Now there's much more, of course, that I could say. But I think that's probably enough. And if I'm going to get out of here, and we're going to get out of here in time, if I understand right, um, the cleanup starts at 11. Is that right, Roger? Okay, so I might push us. Okay, I've got a buffer. You said 11.45, I got, I got a buffer. Of course, I'm using that. Isn't what all pastors and preachers do? We use as much buffer as we can. So let's say, let's say 55. Bring it. 55 at 55 on your on the hour then you need to be you need to be outside and talking out there it'll give us a few more minutes to chat but I've got a couple lessons for you here and these are um, I know Andrew does this as well these are lessons that I hope you wouldn't miss so was there a number of lessons in here of course but these are the ones that I really hope you wouldn't miss first of all when God leads his people in non-moral ways we're talking about leading you geographical or relational he does this through supernatural means like a dream, a vision, an angelic visit, a prophecy. That's what he's going to do. My hunch is, is that almost none of us have ever experienced that. You say, well, it seems to be normal in the Bible. It's not normal in the Bible. Acts was written over decades. So when we read those, it's not every single person's getting those things. These are rare people getting them on rare occasions. For, for specific kinds of reasons that these people would have never have thought of. So when he's leading us in non-moral ways, he's going to do this through extra supernatural means like a vision or an angelic visit, prophecy or dream. You say, well, Dan, uh, don't we have, isn't there a sense in which sometimes we, we get confused because we think God might be leading us, we have an impression. Or, yeah, I talked to somebody on the phone just two days ago about this very thing. Somebody from my church. And we're confused as to whether or not God was leading. And there were circumstances and events that seemed to be lining up. And this person was confused. I told him, I said, if you walk through the Bible. And she was talking about in a non-moral way. I said, if you walk through the Bible, you'll understand that the way that you think God might be leading you, he doesn't do it that way. If he wants you in, in to, to lead you into some kind of geograph geographical place or something relational, he's going to do this in an obvious supernatural way. Now, I say that first lesson on purpose because this, to me, at least in the Christian church, is where people get most confused. Now, I do need to say this, though. Somebody might say to me, well, Dan, isn't it possible that God could do that? Couldn't God give you an impression that you should go speak to this person or an impression that you should go to this or that place? I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying that's not the pattern from the Bible. So I'm just saying that God could do something like this, but I think, therefore, to declare that it's God is going a little step further. I think to be able to say, I'm not really sure, Dan, but, but I think God might be leading this way. That's, I think that's perfectly fine. But as soon as you declare it, then it's better to have Scripture to back you to say how he's, how he's done this in the past. Because that's not been his pattern. That means now that God is uh, introducing a new way of leading that he hasn't done in the Bible. Again, I'm not saying that God can't do that. I'm just saying to declare this as the norm, that God is, in fact, guaranteed he has led me this way, I think that kind of language can be harmful. And it can be harmful, especially as we talk. And you all raised your hand, talking about people who have dragged God's name through the mud. And as Christians, we need to be tired of that. We need to stick up for the good name of God and not allow that to happen. I'm not talking about being belligerent or harsh to such people, but just walking them through it and talking about these kinds of things. So therefore, let's get to the second lesson. And the second lesson is when it becomes clarified. This is how God will lead. And he does this all the time. God leads us all the time, you guys. And I know you know this. 
God leads his people through the inner directional prompting of his spirit into godly character. That's what he does. He's leading us into character type things like love and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control. That's the leading of his spirit. When we get to Galatians 5, it's really clear. Sometimes um, we've had people at our house and we're doing a Bible study and I kind of... Maybe, maybe I set them up a little bit. And I said, you know what we're going to talk about tonight? We're going to talk about the leading of God, how God leads people. Clearly how God leads people. It's going to be slam dunk. You'll know that God's leading people. And they're like, oh, I'm ready to roll. Then you get to Galatians 5 and it's all about character. Well, that's not so exciting. That's not so exciting. Well, you answer me this. What's God more proud of? Whether or not we're in a specific geographical location or whether or not our character clearly exudes what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. God is love. That's his primary characteristic. And if God is if God is love, we ought to expect it as followers of God and as having his spirit inside of us, that that's where he's going to lead us. It's all about character. Galatians 5 is very clear on this. The fruit of the spirit or the fruit of God's leading is going to look like this. And you can tell people by their fruits. You can know people by their fruit. Again, there's many other lessons that maybe we could have grabbed from here. But these are a couple that I think that uh, at least we can start off with and, uh, and see where we get to um, in our dialogue. So uh, we've got about 12 minutes before we got to get out of here, according to my new timeline. <laughs> um, so if you have any thoughts or comments or questions, um, you can go ahead and, uh, and give them to me.